Gracious God, we do thank you for uh, this day. Uh, we thank you for uh, the time of year uh, that we're in each day, uh, getting uh, a little more daylight. And uh, we come this morning not seeking uh, the light of the earth's sun, but seeking the light of your son, Jesus Christ, by the power of your Holy Spirit. We thank you for um, uh, your work in the lives of your people, uh, your faithfulness, uh, your faithfulness in bringing uh, um, judgment and chastisement upon them when they sin, uh, and your faithfulness uh, to, to bless them um, and bring them back and, and return and restore them to you uh, by you working um, faith and repentance uh, in their and our hearts. Lord, as we uh, see how the prophet uh, grieves in this book, uh, uh, laments uh, for the effects uh, of sin, uh, help us to see he also laments the sin itself and, and names it, uh, identifies it, and, and help us to be uh, similarly honest with ourselves and, um, and not just gesture to sin generally, but to name our specific sins and see how uh, they, in particular, are offensive against you. We do pray for your Holy Spirit uh, to teach us this morning, guide us uh, into all truth uh, through uh, the Spirit, um, show us most of all um, ourselves, our sin, and our need for a Savior, and show us uh, your and his glory. We pray all this in the name of Jesus Christ, uh, by the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen. All right, if you'll turn with me in your Bibles to Lamentations chapter 4. And as you're flipping there, let me just briefly recap um, what we talked about last week. Um, last week we talked about uh, Lamentations chapter 3 is the focal point of the book, both in terms of uh, its literary style um, with that intensification of the alphabetic acrostic form, um, but even more, um, it, it's distinct and culminating in this um, dramatic declaration of, of faith and trust and hope in the middle. Um, so as we talked about last week, um, the prophet uh, speaks uh, corporately uh, with that phrase at the beginning of chapter 3, I am the man. Um, the prophet was the man who was delegated by God to carry in his person all that the nation was also experiencing. Their sorrows were his sorrows. And as God delegated, uh, as God's delegated sufferer, he mirrored perfectly and by divine design another prophet who would one day also suffer as the servant of the Lord of whom Isaiah prophesied. Um, suffering, we saw last week, uh, included suffering from internal and physical impairments. Um, obstruction of freedom and light, confinement of movement, and even confinement of prayers, being attacked and badly wounded, being targeted for cruel laughter, uh, ending with deep grief and affliction. And it, he reached his low point in chapter 3 in verses 17 and 18 when he said, My soul is bereft of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is. So I say my endurance has perished so has my hope from the Lord. So it is in the, the midst of these hopeless circumstances that the poem then made its most dramatic declaration of hope. 
The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. It was God's hesed, his gracious love, which produced, maintained, and legitimized the promises contained in the covenant God made with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, and his sons. Even when he must bring pain and suffering, men and women must place their hope in God's goodness. In the face of the direst of adversities, Judah and we are offered hope. It is a word not about answers to the problem of evil, not a word about the circumstances of men and political movements. It's not a word of systems of belief. It's simply a word about our Lord. He is faithful. He is love. He is gracious. He is full of compassion. He is our inheritance. Hope, then, we saw last week, is not an ephemeral matter, but a solid confidence and assured certainty because it comes from the Lord, who is our inheritance. So today, as we turn to chapter 4 in the fourth poem of the book, uh, the might be surprised, maybe not, I don't know. Uh, it comes off that hope and shifts back into a description of the afflictions that befell different classes of people, um, especially uh, there's a lot of reference um, to, the, um, to the devastation of being in a siege, the starvation, um, uh, the loss that's experienced. Um, the repeated um, image or the repeated idea behind the images in chapter four is reversal. Uh, that things, how things once were uh, is, is, is different from how they are now. The ones who were responsible for their world being ups, turned upside down were their religious leaders, the prophets and the priests, whose blind leadership had blood on their hands. So with that as a word of introduction, let me read for us Lamentations chapter four. Um, one other thing is just kind of literary introduction. Um, we, we are having kind of like a de-escalation as we go forward. So last week was the, from a literary standpoint, you know, every verse uh, or every line of the poem uh, was started with the same letter of the alphabet. So it took that acrostic form and amplified it. Now, this one's still an acrostic, but instead of having three lines, per stanza, as the first three poems have had, there will only be two lines per stanza, and when we get to next week, it's still 22 verses, but it's no longer an acrostic, and there's only one line per stanza. So from a, like a literary standpoint, you'll notice our chapters are getting shorter. <laughs> um, and I think that, uh, again, is by design, um, and, and it's showing how the high point was chapter three, and he's still dealing with loss and grief um, but it, it's, um, he, he has this handle on it, and he's, he doesn't have to express it to the same length and degree uh, as he had previously. So, with that as an introduction, hear the word of God from Lamentations chapter 4. How the gold has grown dim, how the pure gold is changed. The holy stones lie scattered at the head of every street. The precious sons of Zion, worth their weight in fine gold, how they are regarded as earthen pots, the work of a potter's hand. Even jackals offer the breast, they nurse their young, but the daughter of my people has become cruel, like the ostriches in the wilderness. 
The tongue of the nursing infant sticks to the roof of its mouth for thirst. The children beg for food, but no one gives to them. Those who once feasted on delicacies perish in the streets. Those who are brought up in purple embrace ash heaps. For the chastisement of the daughter of my people has been greater than the punishment of Sodom, which was overthrown in a moment, and no hands were wrung for her. Her princes were purer than snow, whiter than milk. Their bodies were more ruddy than coral. The beauty of their form was like sapphire. Now their face is blacker than soot. They are not recognized in the streets. Their skin has shriveled on their bones and has become dry as wood. Happier were the victims of the sword than the victims of hunger who wasted away, pierced by the lack of the fruits of the field. The hands of compassionate women have boiled their own children. They became their food during the destruction of the daughter of my people. The Lord gave full vent to his wrath. He poured out his hot anger. He kindled a fire in Zion that consumed its foundations. The kings of the earth did not believe, nor any of the inhabitants of the world, that foe or enemy could enter the gates of Jerusalem. This was for the sins of her prophets and the iniquities of her priests, who shed in the midst of her the blood of the righteous. They wandered blind through the streets. They were so defiled with blood that no one was able to touch their garments. Away, unclean, people cried at them. Away, away, do not touch. So they became fugitives and wanderers. People said among the nations, they shall stay with us no longer. The Lord himself has scattered them. He will regard them no more. No honor was shown to the priests, no favor to the elders. Our eyes failed, ever watching vainly for help. In our watching, we watched for a nation which could not save. They dogged our steps so that we could not walk in our streets. Our end drew near. Our days were numbered, for our end had come. Our pursuers were swifter than the eagles in the heavens. They chased us on the mountains. They lay in wait for us in the wilderness. The breath of our nostrils, the Lord's anointed, was captured in their pits, of whom we said, under his shadow we shall live among the nations. Rejoice and be glad, O daughter of Eden, you who dwell in the land of Uz, but to you also the cup shall pass. You shall become drunk and strip yourself bare. The punishment of your iniquity, O daughter of Zion, is accomplished. He will keep you in exile no longer. But your iniquity, O daughter of Edom, he will punish. He will uncover your sins. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. May he bless it as we talk of it together this morning. So as I said uh, in my introduction, the main idea running through chapter 4 is this idea of reversal, comparing how things were then to how things are now. So in verses 1 through 11, which constitute kind of the first um, main section of this poem, what kind of pictures and metaphors of changed fortunes do we see? What are some of the reversals um, that are poetically described in verses 1 through 11? Yeah, Dave. 
No, and I love how you like, contemporize because that is exactly the idea. Like it, it, starting off with, with gold and sort of asking this question, how's the gold become dim? How has this pure gold been changed? And, and gold doesn't, un unlike silver, doesn't tarnish. Like it, it retains its luster. So it's, it's actually unnatural for, for gold to be altered in this way. So, so as you see this, it's, it's not just some kind of natural decomposition. Um, there is an intended change that's happened. Um, and it starts off, in, if we just read verse one in isolation, we might think it's referring to, to the temple, to the gold that, that's in its instruments, or the, the holy stones uh, that are assembled together. But then verse two makes it clear he, what, what's precious to God isn't that temple. What's precious to God and to the poet is the, that people. The people are the gold. <laughs> They're the holy stones that have been scattered into the streets. Um, They're the ones who, you know, were intended, as, as you say, to be this, this beautiful treasured cup of, of God's, um, you know, God's possession. And they've become, <laughs> in your uh, d disposable McDonald's cup. Um, the word there for, for pottery is, 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 is very much a disposable sort of pottery. Like it's the kind that really is intended for single use. Um, just like we make so many things like, you know, you use once and you throw it away. Like when, when I teach classes and, and we talk about how things get, sometimes it's hard to date sites because, um, things get passed down and they get reused <laughs> over and over again. So just because a cup is found that dates from 1750 doesn't mean the site dates from 1750. We know that that's its earliest date because there's a cup there, but it could be from later because people hold on to these treasured possessions. But then there are kinds of pottery that, you know, we can date a site because we know they're one use. <laughs> Used, throw it away, toss it, just like, you know, we do with dis our disposable culture. Um, so, so the contrast there, the reversal, is fr from what what's was treasured is, is now viewed as disposable, throwawayable. Good, yes, Dana. Yeah, and the cruelty there, it's, it's, it's a, as we'll see later on, like later on it calls them compassionate women who are eating their own children. <laughs> um, um, and it's, it's not that they're intentionally being cruel, withholding you know, nourishment from their children. They have, they have to be cruel. There's nothing to give uh, in, in that, that image. So you have this idea of, yeah, mothers, uh, who are the ones we expect would be compassionate and you know, give of themselves to their children, they have nothing to give. So yeah, a, a real reversal. And I love the, uh, just a, it's a weird um, comparison to nature for us. <laughs> why, are, why are ostriches cruel? <laughs> well, the idea is the ostrich lays its eggs and then goes off. Like the ostrich egg is, the shell is so thick very few predators can get at them, so the mother doesn't have to watch the eggs. And then the heat of the sun uh, furnishes as the incubator, so rather than the ostrich sitting on them. So that's the idea. It's, 
It's as the ostrich lays eggs and wanders off from them. That's what these mothers have been become like, a, a mother who is, is cruel to her children. Yeah, yeah, here, here you have these nursing jackals, and as you say, like throughout the Old Testament, the jackal is the, this instrument of cruelty. It's the place jackals are animals that um, uh, live in the wilderness, live in these evil places, and yet even they take good care and, and nurse their young. Um, meanwhile, the children of, of these women their, their tongues are cleaving to the you know, roof of their mouth because they, they're so parched. They have nothing to, nothing to drink or consume. So, yeah, it's, you know, these good people we would expect to take care of their children aren't. <laughs> and in comparison to these wild animals who are known, reputed for their cruelty, even they treat their children better. So... Yeah, what a reversal there of the, the natural order. Good. What else? What other images? Yeah, Mike. Yeah, so like, whereas the first four verses focus like on the children, um, there's a lot of emphasis there on sons and babies and mothers. In verse five, it switches to the, we, what we, the ruling class, as you say, the elites. Um, even these people, so you would think even mothers would care for their children. In any kind of disaster, like my suspicion is, you know, a wealthier person will come through it more, <laughs> more ably with more stuff than I will. But even they, as you say, are, are you know, these people are used to fine delicacies, are, um, are, are in the streets starving. These people who've been clothed in purple and, and used to the best of things are, are now adopting the, the clothing and, and posture of mourning. So the people at the top, you know, have been completely cast down to the bottom.
Yeah, the blessings that he has bestowed upon them. And as you say, their position is there because of God's blessing. Because of his commitment to his people, they experience this degree of, of, of blessing and that these people were able to live like this. And now he has withdrawn that hand of blessing and he's turned his face of cursing upon them. Um, so it's, it, and it's, even though we, we have some blame, we'll get to in, in verse 13, it's singling out uh, some responsible parties. Uh, it's, not, um, it's not shine again away from the fact that it's God who's brought this upon them. It's from his anger that these things have befallen them. Um, it is, it's the result of his doing, and he has reversed the way he has been treating them previously or from an outward circumstance. Inwardly, he has not changed his commitment to them, but outwardly, what he's doing for them or to them is, is the complete opposite of what um, he has promised um, because they have not done what they promised. Good, other reversals that we see. Get straight far away from my Bible. Um, to, to go back for, 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 to, to Mike about these, um, uh, you know, these wealthy people, verse 7, her princes were purer than snow, whiter than milk. Their bodies were more ruddy than coral. The beauty of their form was like sapphire. So that is poetically describing their um, outward appearance. So, you know, in, in those kind of cultures, to, to have fairer skin means you're not working out in the sun all day. <laughs> you know, like we, we value a tan, and we think tan is... is the sign that someone doesn't have to work, <laughs> they can go lay on a beach all day. For them, it was the opposite. White skin is the, the idea, these are people who don't have to work all day. They can sit inside and, and lap up these luxuries, and look how they're transformed. Now their face is blacker than soot. They are not recognized in the streets. Their skin has shriveled on their bone and has become dry as wood. Um, like, so it's giving this description of this starving body. Um, I, I never plan these things, but like the different elements of my life always seem to overlap. So <laughs> for class next week, um, we're going to be talking about um, this series of, of horrible famines that took place uh, in the 1870s that were literally worldwide. Um, you know, 30 million people in India alone were estimated to have died from these famines that were partly result from environmental circumstances and partly the result of some really awful British policies in India. So it was like bad economic political policy meets with environmental disaster and you get 30 million people die. But the, <laughs> I kept thinking about that book uh, all week as, as we're reading this because it, it, it gives you pictures over and over again of starving people. And, and literally, you know, the skin shriveling on their bones, especially like, you know, it is a picture of a person who's starving. So he's giving this image of what life is like in the city of Jerusalem as it's being besieged. And, and no one is exempt. Little children, they're suffering. The wealthiest princes, are also suffering. They are changed completely in their, their appearance. Uh, they're wearing their mourning 
um, you know, on their faces. And, it, you know, we get this verse 9, happier were the victims of the sword than victims of hunger who wasted away pierced by the lack of the fruits of the field. Um, again, sorry, I'm teaching you my other class. There, there's this one line that, again, stuck with me where they're reducing the rice ration um, that they give to people in these work camps. And the doctors at the time are telling them, look, just take these people out and shoot them. Because all you're going to be doing, if you if this is the amount of food you give them, they will be dead in three months. Sure enough, they're dead in three months. It's that kind of um, idea, like it, it'd be more humane to get a sword in the stomach than to be pierced with this sword of famine and to waste away like this. Yeah, Dave. So Jeremiah lived through through the siege of Jerusalem, and so. So that this is kind of like his poetic reflection. Like he gave us a description of some of the same things back in Jeremiah, um, but this is his poetic reflection on what has befallen the the people of God. Um, and it's like again, I think it is instructive to kind of how someone deals with a tragedy on this scale and level. And one... Yeah, and, and it's very, and like, it's, it's taking what is, like, again, sieges are chaotic. Like, you know, and he's taking that chaos that he's lived through and the people of Jerusalem have lived through. He's taken the chaos of the things he's seen and he's presenting them in a very ordered picture. Um, and again, it's a way um, uh, Walt Kaiser in his commentary on, uh, for this chapter talks about the, this is naming, like naming the things, like as you kind of like, like, all right, let's, let's really be open and honest. Let's name the thing that's happened to us. Let's put it out there. Let's not pretend it didn't happen, bury it. No, let's, the best way to deal with it is get it in the open to name it, describe it, own up to it. Um, as we see, like, you know, he, he's saying that, uh, again, it's the Lord, verse 11, gave full vent to his wrath. He poured out his hot anger and kindled a fire in Zion that consumed its foundations. And, like, we think of fire, like, you know, consumes the roof, or if it's really bad fire, it consumes the walls. For fire to consume all the way to the foundations, like, again, it's um, this hyperbolic description of how complete the destruction uh, that God brings upon his people for their sin. Um, and they experienced these horrendous conditions. Uh, the hands of compassionate women have boiled their own children, um, they became their food during the destruction of the daughter of my people. So it's, he, he's, I, to your point, Dave, he's using a, a very exquisite literary form to describe horrible, horrible things and just kind of like getting them out there, putting them in an order, in a pattern um, to, to deal with them, to wrestle with them uh, emotionally, theologically, 
um, to, to what did we just go through and what does it mean? All right, so the turning point here is in verse 12, and then he starts to, to switch to why it happened. Um, so verse 12, the kings of the earth did not believe, nor any of the inhabitants of the world, that foe or enemy could enter the gates of Jerusalem. This was for the sins of her prophets and the iniquities of her priests, who shed in the midst of her the blood of the righteous. So while earlier in Lamentations, the poet emphasized the collective nature of Judah's sin, in chapter 4, he, he focuses a degree of blame on the religious leaders, the prophets and priests. So why? Why are these groups of people specifically named here? They're the ones who should know better. Yeah, and as we think, like, why is it, why are they being treated worse than Sodom and Gomorrah? Because they should have known better. <laughs> like, Sodom, like, okay, Sodom wasn't, wasn't composed of the people of God. They weren't, wasn't composed of people who had received God's word. These people had. Um, they knew. Um, it's like when Paul in, in Romans sort of talks about, like, there was trespass before the law, but when the law comes and names trespass, it's worse to, to, to be the people of God and to break that law. And I, I think I remember when I taught through Romans, I used the example of my, my siblings and I were the greatest trespassers on earth. The entire neighborhood was our yard. <laughs> um, until someone calls and complains and tells my parents, and my parents say, you cannot go in the cow pasture anymore. We were going in the cow pasture before. <laughs> they tell us not to. But, but now there were repercussions. <laughs> like, uh, there were serious repercussions if you went, were found in the, the cow pasture. Uh, um, yeah, I had sort of a red bottom sometimes because it, it was the shortcut. Like, the quickest way to get over there is to go to a cow pasture. Uh, the people who had the cows didn't like it because we were crawling over the fence, weakening the fence, and then the next thing you know, cows are... Um, grazing on, on the, my mother's plants. <laughs> um, so it's that kind of idea, the ones who should know better, uh, the ones who should be teaching the people and guiding them away from their sin are instead pushing them deeper into it. Oh, I saw a hand up there. Yeah, Chris. Yeah, and, it, and again, like this idea of, like, why are they being singled out? They're not being singled out to excuse the people for, well, it, it was our priests and prophets, they didn't teach us. It was, we were doing bad things, and our priests and prophets didn't correct us. <laughs> they didn't, like, so it's that, that, that idea, the people that should be guiding them to truth, and instead 
have been, as we saw, and I, I think here having the background of, of what we've studied in Jeremiah really helps us to understand. Like, you know, think of that, that confrontation um, where they're about to kill Jeremiah because he's spoken against the city of Jerusalem. Um, or that confrontation with, with Hananiah where he says, no, God's going to deliver us in two years and all the exiles are coming back. They're saying lies over and over again. Um, and, and as we see here, they have blood on their hands. Um, you know, the, the specific sin, uh, the sins of her prophets, the iniquities of a priest who shed blood in the midst, and it, who shed in the midst of her the blood of the righteous, the blood of the incident, innocent. Um, and, you know, as we read that, where do we see blood shed by priests and prophets in, in Jeremiah? The blood of the prophets. The people who are telling the people to repent. People who are pointing them to the book of Deuteronomy. Look, this is God's word. This is what he said. This is what's going to befall you if you don't turn. If you don't repent. This is what's going to happen to you. And instead, they've been given over and over again, there's no need for repentance. God will never destroy Jerusalem. Put your faith in um, the presence of the temple, the presence of a Davidic king. Uh, you know, the, Jeremiah, he's, he's, he's wrong. God would never do this. Um, and, but it's a lie. It, it's not paying attention to what God has said. It's, it's looking at those blessings of the covenant and, and not looking at the requirements of the covenant, not looking at what their part is in bringing these blessings about. Yeah, Dave. <laughs> well, ministers, yeah, but intellectuals, prophets. Yeah, and I, I would say, again, like in, to, to make the comparison, it's, it's influencers from within. Like, these are their, their religious leaders. These aren't Babylonian influencers. These are Jewish influencers. So in our sense, it's the way Christian churches in our society are, are straying from God's word, not sticking to it. Um, giving a message that is compatible with culture rather than speaking truth into that culture. Like speaking a message of ease, speaking a message of complacency, rather than confronting people with the truth of God's word. I, I had never encountered that phrase before, but I'm holding on to it. <laughs> I, I think that, that is such a great, and, and like you, I, like, because now it's going through my head, like moments in, in military history where uh, people are, you know, have a good defense, um, you know, the outside threat shouldn't be as threatening, it shouldn't win 
if all goes according to the defensive plan, but you get someone in a key position of power who responds to a bribe or uh, you know, an offer from the enemy or out of sheer malice opens the gates. Like, it's so much more devastating when the leadership uh, it, from within, the people that's supposed to be guiding you, supposed to be protecting you, in fact, are working against you. Um, and it's, it's led to bloodshed. And notice, like, uh, the reversal, again, the pattern of reversal continues here. Like, it, it, these are the people, the priests, are the people who, in the law, are, are given the responsibility of determining what is clean and what is unclean. And now they're the ones, that's the people who are pointing to them saying, unclean, unclean, go away. <laughs> like, so the reversal, the people that are supposed to be the ones who know clean from unclean, right from wrong, are, are the ones who are, are being driven um, from the city because they are unclean. Um, they are polluted. They are contaminated by the blood uh, that is on their hands. And and nobody wants to touch them lest they become unclean too. So it's this picture of uh, this reversal of the people who are supposed to be the ones um, policing uh, what is clean and unclean. They themselves are so, um, have become so unclean by the corruption of the blood that's on their hands that you know, they're being driven away. They had, absolutely, and, and they have chosen. Yeah, no, and, and again, that's why the blame lays on on them. Like God is just being faithful to telling them this is what's going to happen, and as you say, He's given them opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to repent. To return. He's given them instruction. Look, if you surrender to the Babylonians, it will go better for you. Like, uh, you know, submit to, to your punishment rather than, than trying to run away from it or get away from it. Um, and you see that here, hints of that um, in these kind of, they're, they're a little, maybe a little oblique, but um, uh, verse 17 our eyes failed, ever watching vainly for help. In our watching we watched for a nation which could not save. So again, thinking in terms of, of Jeremiah, uh, we saw um, Judah over and over again put their trust in Egypt. So Babylon's coming toward them. The Egyptians are going to save us. Um, and, and there was that one moment where it seemed to be happening. The siege gets lifted because the Egyptians have crossed the border. Um, and so... Jerusalem is putting their hope and, and they're keeping a watch for Egypt rather than keeping a watch for a God who can actually deliver them. And we know the Egyptians uh, by this point are, are pretty, <laughs> aren't, aren't what they used to be <laughs> anymore. Um, they, they wouldn't have been able, even if they had come all the way out of Egypt, they basically crossed the border, then turned around and went home. <laughs> like, yeah, no, we don't really want to fight the Babylonians. Uh, we'll go back home. But even if they had gone to the, fight the Babylonians, the Babylonians probably would have crushed them. 
because they had just crushed them a few uh, years before. So it's, it's that idea like rather than listening to God, they're turning to these other things. Rather than waiting and watching for God, they're waiting and watching, anticipating for Egypt to come deliver them. And they're, they're misplacing um, their trust. Um, they're putting their trust, rather than putting their trust in God and turning to him, they're turning to Egypt, putting their trust in Egypt, uh, something that could never meet what they expected from that people, a people who could not have delivered them. We also have in verses um, 19 and 20, um, our pursuers were swifter than eagles in the heavens. They chased us on the mountains. They in lay, lay in wait for us in the wilderness. The breath of our nostrils, the Lord's anointed, was captured in their pits, of whom we said, under his shadow we shall live among the nations. So that seems to be like a poetic description of King Zedekiah fleeing. Um, and, and we saw how he fled the city. We're told that multiple times in Jeremiah, how he, he snuck out of the city, he and his retinue. Um, the Babylonians chased them down, capture them, put out his eyes. Um, so it's a poetical description of what has happened. But notice it doesn't name him. Uh, it refers to his position. He, he, he's God's, the Lord's, Yahweh's anointed, right? So again, it's, it's like just like they turned to Egypt and put their trust in him. We have a son of David on the throne. And so therefore, you know, we're going to live under his shadow among the nations. Like that is, it's his protective shadow that's keeping us. Um, and it's, it's not. <laughs> uh, the, the king, the real king, is the king behind the king. Um, it's, it's not, we have the Lord's anointed, <laughs> It should be we have the Lord's anointed. Like it's who's, who's really responsible for the protective shadow that uh, falls over God's people. It's not the presence of a Davidic king. It's the presence of God th working through his anointed. Other things about um, verses 12 through uh, 20. We'll, we'll see there's a little two-verse kind of ending section um, that I want to get to, but before we turn there, make sure I get any thoughts on verses 12 through 20. Yeah, and and that's who they've like they like made a talisman of him. Like nothing could ever befall us. As long as we have the Lord's anointed, we have a Davidic king. And, and we've seen this in Lamentations. Nothing can happen to us while we have the presence of temple. Um, you know, and, and we saw that in Jeremiah. The temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. They want um, to continue and the blessings of the covenant, to go back to what Matthew um, pointed out, without fulfilling any of the obligations of the covenant. And by not fulfilling the obligations of the covenant, they're actively calling the curses of that covenant upon them. Um, yeah. 
Yeah, I think it's not intentionally pointing to a Messiah, but I think the New Testament takes, like, the Lord's anointed does enter the pit for us. Like, I mean, I, I think the New Testament takes the idea. I don't think this is prophetically looking, applying to Jesus, but I think it does prophetically apply to Jesus. It's like one of those ways prophets say more than they know what they're saying. So I think he's saying something about Zedekiah that will become true of Jesus because the Lord's anointed descended into the pit and saved us. That, that does happen. I think here it's specifically talking, not looking forward in a hopeful sense to a Messiah, but what has actually befallen the Lord's anointed in this moment. But I think from a New Testament perspective, we can see how Jesus, um, the Lord's anointed, enters Sheol, the pit, for us. The one who is really given the breath. Yeah, yeah, that's a, that's a great uh, point, Chris. All right, so last five minutes. Um, so for the first time in, in verse 21, we have another nation named by name. <laughs> We've had lots of oblique references to, to different nations in Book of Lamentations, but this is the first time a nation is being specified. So, and, and it, Frankly, for me, it, it, it wasn't the nation I was expecting to be named. <laughs> like, of all the nations uh, around, um, around Judah, and you know, we saw those prophecies that, that Jeremiah gave in his book of the nations, starting with Egypt and ending with Babylon, and Edom was just kind of one of the ones in the middle. Um, so why, why, why name Edom here? Like, what, what's it telling us? about Edom, what's it using Edom for? Yeah, Cynthia, I saw your hand first. So. Yeah, and, and here, like, you know, notice how it's specifying their, they're rejoicing at this moment. Um, uh, from a historic standpoint, they used the fall of Jerusalem to actually move into Judah. Um, uh, there's evidence they extended their settlements all the way up to Bethlehem. So, you know, their they're, they're close neighbor uh, but enemy <laughs> has fallen, and it's like they've come to watch it happen um, and then to, to lay claim to, to their land after it's happened. So it's like, it's not just rejoicing in somebody else's downfall. They're rejoicing in someone else's downfall and, and using it for their gain. Um, rather than like 
learning a lesson. <laughs> like maybe there's a message in, in this. Like be careful, this could happen to you. Uh, they're using it as opportunity. Yeah, Dave. Absolutely. The, the point is, like, the point isn't necessarily how bad Edom is. The point, I think, is to contrast this, this nation that rejoiced at your downfall, it too will experience similar judgments where you, yours has a limit, it has an end. Your exile won't be complete or permanent. Theirs will be. Um, and it's that, that contrast. Because God has given them promises, even though the same things that have befallen other nations and will befall other nations have happened to them, they will not end completely because of God's work in continuing them. Um, he will keep you in exile no longer, but your iniquity, O daughter of Edom, he will punish, he will uncover your sins. So both of them are being punished. The punishment of your iniquity, O daughter of Zion, is accomplished. So it's sort of like, you've had your punish, punishment, it's met the, the demands of justice, and it has an end to it. Their punishment will befall them, and, and their sin will be uncovered. So these people who think, oh, we can rejoice at what's happening to, to Judah, should instead take warning. If God's going to do that to his own people, what's he going to do to us? Like, we don't even know where the land of Uz is. <laughs> so I think, uh, to, to answer your question, like, yeah, like, they, they get folded in with everybody. Like, they don't survive as a distinct people um, the same way that the people of God. Um, you know, like, when, when nations break up, they usually get kind of sucked into other entities, but their specific identity is effaced. Yeah, you could see like, not nobody's excusing the Babylonians, but like the Babylonians are in the game, um, and you know things happen like in the game and horrible things. They're these are people that are in the stands and and they're rejoicing and participating. In it. As a Duke basketball fan, I'm going to leave <laughs> use an analogy from yesterday's basketball game. Uh, Duke's star player got hurt. 
not by another player at Wake Forest, but by a fan running onto the court, stepping on the back of his leg. Like, it's, that's worse. Like, I can take the loss, <laughs> but, but how people reacted to the loss is, is, in a sense, that's what everybody's talking about today. They should be talking about how good Wake Forest uh, was in that game. They shot 60%, but nobody's talking about that today. They're all talking about should students storm the floor anymore because it's a danger to players. The second time that's happened this year where a team's star player got injured by a crowd running on the floor. And it's that idea. These are Edomites aren't supposed to be even involved here. And it's like they're, they, like they've come, and I, I love how you brought Psalm 137 in there. Like it's like they've come to, to just to watch what's happening to Jerusalem and to rejoice and exult over it. Um, and that, in this sense, is, is, is a degree worse than what the Babylonians do. Because the Babylonians, they're destroying it because they're Babylonians. <laughs> like they're in the war. That's what happens in war. Um, these are people who are, you know, again, kind of rejoicing over what happens to God people and then trying to use that to their advantage. Esau, yep. So I guess I was thinking the, the, the two lines of Jacob and the son of promise. And uh, so I suppose the Jacob and the, the Israel kind of cover that we're our grandson too. Uh, Jacob was slightly impacted. And uh, Esau was kind of reproved for going to pass the land. They're family, you know, they're related, um, you know, distantly, <laughs> but they're related. Um, and it, so to go back to, it's like, you know, not just somebody coming to rejoice over my downfall, but like my cousin, um, one of my cousins. I've got a lot of cousins. <laughs> I went to college with a cousin. Uh, we were in the same class. I never saw him, spoke to him once in four years. <laughs> that was smart, mostly because of my parents. I had a cousin, my, my siblings had a cousin who um, moved in, was a new student at their school, and they got in a fight in the playground because he said, yeah, my grandma lives in that, that house. No, no, she doesn't. That's where my grandma lives. <laughs> but it, so it's like worse because it's a family member, somebody you should know better. Um, and, and, and instead of lamenting what has befallen God's people, they're rejoicing in it. Um, and, and I think the point to... to to Dave's, what said earlier, like it, it's the contrast of, all right, yes, and again, it was part of the grieving process. Like it, it's befallen us, but there's a limit to it. Um, it, it has an it, God's punishment, chastisement of us ha, has been accomplished. Theirs hasn't happened yet, um, and theirs is going to be so much more worse because of the things they've done to the people of God. All right, well, let me. Uh, close us with prayer. Uh, next week, again, even shorter chapter, uh, chapter five, and bring Lamentations to a close. Oh my God, uh, we, uh, we have to confess that um, like uh, the people we see in this book, um, it, we too often um, become complacent 
uh, in the good gifts that you have given to us, um, that we put uh, the things you've given to us, we put them in the ultimate position rather than seeing them uh, for what they are, uh, rather than using them to direct us to you. Uh, we make idols uh, of those things, even as the people of God made an uh, idol of your temple, made an idol of your holy city, made an idol of your Davidic king. Lord, help us uh, to not make idols of our own heart, um, but help us to, to follow you, um, to, to look to you, uh, to turn our faces in, in faith and repentance um, to you, uh, that when we go through uh, affliction um, and we see horrible things uh, like those that are being described here, that we can endure them uh, with hope, not a hope rooted in our, our circumstances, our material possessions, but a hope uh, firmly rooted in who you are and uh, what you have done for your people in the past, in the present, and in the future. Uh, all those are the same as to you, and therefore they are all certain. Uh, so help us to put our faith in you, the one uh, who holds uh, the certain future before us. Help us now, uh, even as we uh, turn from study to fellowship and then to worship, that you would uh, turn our eyes towards you, help us uh, lift one another up, um, help us to, to be uh, open with one another, to, to name those things um, that uh, afflict and concern us, um, but also to turn to you as the one uh, who can uh, bring uh, relief and comfort and most of all hope. We ask this all in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ, by the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen.